Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, if we've never been introduced before, my name is David, David Guzik. Uh, two things I think are important for you to know about me tonight. First of all, I'm a friend of Pastor Daniel's, and I really respect that man and how God's using him here in, uh, in Palos Verdes. It's just wonderful to see what God's doing. So that's one thing. The other thing is, I have the real privilege, uh, next year, I'm going to be a part of the Israel trip that you guys are taking. And man, let me tell you, if you at all can make it, look, I, I understand that it's, it's a big investment to do and everything, but man, if you at all can do it, it, it is a, um, sometimes the term life-changing gets thrown around kind of casually, but it, it is. A lot of people say that a trip to Israel is life-changing, and it'll be really, really um, impactful and a lot of fun. So I'm thrilled to be a part of that, uh, just because I love Pastor Daniel and Leah and just all that God's doing around here. So, um, and I'm also very pleased this evening to be a part of your Summer in the Psalms series. Uh, it just happened that this Wednesday night worked out good for me, so I was thrilled when Daniel said this was the one I could come, and that I get to talk to you about Psalm 73 here this evening. So would you please open up your Bibles to Psalm 73, and we're just going to walk verse by verse through this beautiful psalm. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you open your arms to us and you invite us to come even with our questions. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us here this evening through this remarkable psalm and truly impart to us an eternal perspective. Do it, Lord, we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph, one of the great choir leaders and songwriters in ancient Israel. After David, there's more psalms written by Asaph than any other person in the collection of psalms. And Psalm 73, I could talk about it a lot. Let's just dig into it. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, Asaph began this psalm with a simple declaration of the goodness of God to his people. Did you see that there in the very opening line? Truly, God is good to Israel. He understood God had been very good to his people. And his people in his context, of course, being an old covenant believer, he could say God is good to Israel. He understood that God is good to Israel and to the pure in heart. He says that in the second line of verse 1. So if we ended the psalm at verse 1, not only would it be a short psalm, but almost kind of a boring psalm. Okay, God's good to Israel, to the pure in heart. Praise the Lord. Oh, but that's not where it ends. Look now at verse 2. But as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. There was something that tripped Asaph up in the walk of life. 
There he is just walking through life, doing his best to walk with God, just like you do. You love the Lord. You want to honor him with your life. Good heavens, you're here on a Wednesday evening. There's other things you could be doing, you know. Don't think about the other things for a moment. But, but you want to walk with the Lord here. Here you are. And that was Asaph. But along that way, something tripped him up. He, he started to stumble. His feet, his steps began to slip. Why? Look at verse 3. Can't you relate to this? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All right, Lord, this is what I know. I know you're good to Israel. I get that down. But you know what? It also seems like you're good to the wicked. It seems like the wicked prosper as well. It seems to contradict what I know about you and your goodness to Israel. It seems like you're too good. Look at the description there in verse 3. To the arrogant and to the wicked. And this is what makes Asaph almost stumble and slip. Asaph saw the same troubling evidence that many people see every day in their own lives. Many of us, we can't deny that God is good to us, but it also seems like God is too good to the wicked. And if God is good to the wicked, as well as to the pure in heart, then what's the good of godliness? What use is it? I mean, if it seems like uh, you can have a good life and be happy and enjoy everything, whether or not you're a pagan or whether or not you honor the Lord, then what good is it to honor the Lord? And I'll tell you, these kind of deep questions, they cause us to question the moral order of the universe. If there's no good in being good, then why should I be good? If the wicked enjoy the same prosperity as the pure of heart, then what's the reward of godliness? You know what's amazing about Psalm 73 is that in many ways it's a companion to the entire book of Job. The book of Job deals with this theme again and again. There's also a passage in Jeremiah chapter 20 that reads very much like this. These are questions that come to humanity from ancient times to the present day. Now, Asaph's not done thinking about this problem. He's going to get himself deeper into the quicksand. Are you ready? Hold on to a rope and let's go down in the quicksand here, starting at verse 4. He's speaking about the ungodly, the wicked, the arrogant. Verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That, that was thought to be a good thing back then. <laughs> They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their, their, eye, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. You know, perhaps... Asaph had seen some of the wicked die painful and agonizing deaths, but he had seen enough of the wicked die peaceful deaths that he could write this in verse 4, they have no pangs until their death. And it seemed not only do the wicked get along okay, but sometimes it seems like they have a better life. Look at this verse 5. They're not in trouble as others are, nor are they stricken like the rest of mankind. 
You see, it doesn't, at first he was saying, Lord, it seems like the wicked are blessed equally to the righteous. Now he says, it seems like the wicked are blessed more than the righteous. Their lives seem to have less trouble. They're not as stricken as the average man. And what's the result of that? Does that make the wicked man very humble before God? Does that make the wicked man say, oh, I should, why am I so blessed? That's what the wicked say all the time, right? Why am I so blessed? Why should I receive such bounty from the creator? That's not what the wicked say. Look at how they react to to this this mercy of God upon them. Verse six, therefore, pride is their necklace. You see, in Asaph's analysis, because God did not punish the wicked as he should, they became more wicked. And, And then they started adding pride to themselves, like a prominent necklace. Therefore, they become more violent, more greedy, and more likely to scoff and to blaspheme. You gotta admit, this is some pretty impressive poetry. God's a good writer, is he not? The the wicked man is there with this ostentatious, look at it there in verse six, necklace of pride. And then he's covered with an impressive garment, but that covering is violence towards others. He's so filled with food, verse seven, that his eyes swell out. And his heart overflows. Verse 8 talks about how his mouth always scoffs and speaks with malice. And his mouth, verse 9, is set against the heavens. Worst of all, everybody seems to hear about this wicked man and his prosperity. Because it seems like, did you see it there? In the very last verse there, verse 9, that his tongue struts through the earth. He's online all the time telling people about his life. And so together with Asaph, we look at these rich, famous, proud, showy, violent, greedy, foul-speaking gangsters. They strut around about enjoying their wickedness. And we're troubled by their prosperity and by the seeming indifference of God against them. Look, don't you care? Don't you see what all these celebrities and influencers are doing? Lord, they're so wicked. They're doing so much damage in the world. They're spreading so much confusion and fear. And Lord, yet they're there. They're setting about on their jets and their islands and their high life. And Lord, it's terrible out there, Lord. And then verse 10, we haven't sunk down deep enough. I hope you got a good hold on this rope. Verse 10 Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. The wicked man has associates who are just like him. And what do they say? Look at it there in verse 11. They say, how can God know? You see, in the previous verses, Asaph told us that the wicked man sets his mouth against heaven. Well, this is the kind of thing that the wicked man says against heaven. 
they say things like this. Well, you know, if I'm doing something to offend the big man upstairs, then let him strike me down with a bolt of lightning. And then they count to five and nothing happens. They go, well, I guess there's no God, or I guess he's fine with what I'm doing. And those kind of wicked blasphemies all the time. They think that God is either blind or ignorant and that they can do as they please and God's unable to do anything against them. And so he kind of sums it up in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Asaph was so frustrated that he saw the wicked life as the good life. Look at them, he says. They're always at ease. They always increase in riches. They are rewarded for their wickedness by a God who seems to be as unknowing as the wicked say that he is. Now, friends, you agree here. This is not great factual analysis but it's a tremendous explanation of the heart, is it not? Now, we, we, we all agree that, that every believer has to struggle with the same thing that Asaph has struggled with. Why do the wicked seem to prosper? Why do the ungodly seem to have it so good? But, but look, we, we can agree on this, right? It isn't true that they are always at ease. I mean, look, let's face it, every married couple knows this. When you start throwing around the words always and never in an argument, you know, you, you, you're, you're, going, you're exaggerating a bit, aren't you? And so here's what Asaph is doing. But we get his feeling completely, don't we? We feel the same way. They're always at ease. They always increase in richer. Now, objectively, that's not true. But I don't know if this is the right word, but emotively, we catch it exactly. We also catch the, the statement in verse 13. Did you see that? Asaph cries out and he says, All in vain I have kept my heart clean. The frustration just kept building and building and building for Asaph. He felt that it was all vain for him to be pure in heart. Vain for him to have clean hands before God. Vain for him to be innocent. It does no good. It accomplishes nothing. Why? Look at verse 14. All day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Lord, my life is more difficult than the life of the unbeliever, of the ungodly man. There's the wicked man. They're enjoying all their wealth, all their ease, all their pride. And me, I'm stricken, he says in verse 14, and I'm rebuked. And I got to endure it. When? All day long and every morning. Lord, it seems that you're easy on the wicked and you're hard on me, Asaph. Again, as I said before, we would expect that as in any kind of poetic uh, composition, the wicked man's life is not as good as Asaph is claiming. And Asaph's life wasn't as bad as he was claiming. But we understand the sentiment exactly. We get his feeling. All right, so I think we pretty much reached the bottom of the rope with, uh, in the quicksand. You ready to start being pulled up? We don't have to pull ourselves up. Hang on to the rope. Hang on to the rope right here 
And the Lord God will pull us up here starting at verse 15. You ready for this? If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Stop right there. Asaph caught himself from sliding into complete despair, thinking about the influence it would have on the children. Now, I got to say, I don't know if this is the best reason, but it's not a bad one. Lord, if I go into total despair, what kind of influence is that going to be on my kids? If I forsake the Lord, if I'm the one, if I take these inner thoughts, these inner doubts that I have, and if I start dominating the, the, uh, the dinner discussion at the table with my teenagers, what are they going to think? That new generation is going to think there's nothing in it to serve the Lord. That God is not good. Now again, I'm not saying that that's the best argument for sort of pumping the brakes. But but it's not a bad one. We do have to be conscious about how our struggles impact other people. And again, I'm not saying that's the whole story. But the sentiment that he communicates here in verse 15 is not completely bad. There's a sense in which he did not want to promote this sense of injustice and despair that he felt. I can't deny that I feel it. I can't deny that this is what I see. But maybe there's more to what I want to see. And I don't want to spread it to others until I've resolved it some more in my own mind. That's why he says starting in verse 16 now. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It was wearing me out. I was stressing out over this. I don't know what to do. It's too hard. It's too painful for me. It's a wearisome task. I feel plagued and chastened. And I look over to the ungodly man, the wicked man, and he seems to have it so good. Here's the turning point. You ready for the hinge of the whole psalm? Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. The crisis seemed to build and build for Asaph until he went to the house of the Lord. There he gained a perspective on his problem that he didn't have before. There, for the first time, he's able to see things from an eternal perspective, an eternal viewpoint. And then he could discern their end. He, he understood, it was like a flash. There's something about their end that's different. He understood this. That if what God says about this life and eternity are real and we believe that they are real, then this is what Asaph would say. He would say, the worst day I have on this earth is the worst I'm going to have it for all of eternity. And he would understand this. For that wicked man, the best day he has on this earth is the best that he'll have it for all eternity. And he measured life and eternity in the scales 
And it was like a flash of revelation to him. And you know what brought it to him? Going to the house of the Lord. He brought his questions to the house of the Lord and God spoke to him. You say, well, how would that do it? What, what was the pastor preaching on it that morning? No, well, what is it about the house of God that brought Asaph answers? Well, there's a few different ways. First of all, when he came to the house of the Lord, when he came to the sanctuary of God, there was prayer and worship. And you know what we do in prayer and worship? We center our hearts and our minds on God. We make him our focus. And and our hearts and our minds get lifted above just our, our, our regular mundane thinking. He gained a fresh appreciation of God and eternity. Whoa, wait a minute. I'm in contact with the eternal here. This life is not all there is. But there is a glorious, transcendent, holy God who rules and reigns in heaven, and he's created things on this earth. And while I don't understand everything about how he administrates things, he's Lord over all, coming into the house of God, praying with God's people, worshiping with God's people. That brought him that awareness. But then the second thing was, he came to the sanctuary and heard the word of God in the sanctuary. I find one of the most neglected understandings that we have about the Old Testament and the role of the priests and the Levites was we underestimate the responsibility they had for teaching the people of Israel God's word. It's a fascinating study. I'm not going to get into it very much right now, but you can find dozens of passages in the Old Testament that talk about the principle in some way or another of the teaching priest, of the idea of the Levite who brings God's word to the people. So when Asaph came to the sanctuary and was under the ministry of the priest, no doubt he heard the proclamation of God's word. And by that he understood that there was a truth that went beyond what he saw and experienced in everyday life. Look, I see what I see in my life and in the life of the wicked man, but you know what? There's truth that's even more certain than that. And the third thing, is when he came to the sanctuary, he would observe sacrifice. And he would understand that God takes sin so seriously that sin must be judged. Sin must be atoned for, even if it's by an innocent victim who stands in the place of a guilty one. And that transference, that substitution happens by faith. Oh, Asaph learned so much at the house of God that changed his perspective. And friends, this is one of God's great purposes in establishing a place where his people come to meet with him. A place like this. Look, in some sense, this is kind of just a, it's just a room. It's made with the same kind of building materials that, that you can find in any kind of structure or building around here. On the other hand, this is a holy place. This is the sanctuary of the Lord. This is where prayer is made. This is where God is worshipped. This is where his work, is, his word, I should say, is proclaimed. And this is where the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary is exalted and proclaimed. The same things 
that Asaph got when he came to the house of the Lord. Now, I don't mean to imply for a moment that there's only one place that you can come and meet with God. Let me tell you a little story about Israel. On one of my first trips to Israel, I was going to go, and this is my first time ever going to Israel, I was going to go pray at the Western Wall. But pretty amazing thing in Jerusalem. You know, you, you write a little prayer on a paper and you got to go and you, gotta, you put a, a kippah on and either bring your own or you put a little paper one that they'll give to you. You go to the Western Wall and I was so ready for this. I was just so ready. This was going to be an amazing spiritual experience I had at the Western Wall. So I walked up there and you kind of think, well, how am I going to stand? What am I going to do? So I kind of go and I kind of you know, lightly put my hand on the wall and I'm just ready. I'm just waiting there. I'm ready for the most transcendent moment of prayer that I've ever had in my life. And let me tell you what I felt. Nothing. And, and it was like almost a profound nothing. Like, like, like a God imposed nothing. And I'm like, come on, Lord. Here I am. I've come a long way for this, God. Here, here I am. And then, and then, you know what? It's as if I felt the Lord speak to me, speak to my heart, speak to my conscience. I, I can't really describe it, of course. But I, I felt as if the Lord said to me, David, I'm not any closer to you here than I am in California. I'm like, well, why did I come all this way? No, 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 that, that's not the issue at all. <laughs> the issue is simply this. It's like, David, you, you don't have to come here to get close to me. And, and, and instead of being, I, my heart was just flooded with joy. Well, sure, the Lord's here, but he's also in California. He's everywhere. God is with his people. So I'm not trying to say that this whole thing, this focus on the sanctuary means that there's only one place that you can come and meet with God or that there's certainly holy places. But I will say this. There are special places. It's a special place anywhere where God's people come together, where they pray together, where they worship together, where his word is proclaimed, and where the cross is exalted. That makes it a special place. And that's what the Lord was communicating to Asaph right then. It's good to have a place separate from other places where we focus on heavenly, eternal perspectives. And for Asaph, this was the sanctuary of God, the temple in Jerusalem, or the tabernacle that existed before the temple. But for us, it's the place where we meet together with God's people for worship, fellowship, prayer, the hearing of his word, And when Asaph went to the sanctuary of God, he received understanding. It wasn't just a place to impact the senses and the feelings, but the understanding of a man. You see, Asaph didn't remark on how he felt or how he experienced their end. No, what did he say? He says there, he discerned their end in verse 17. That's a word of understanding. Now look, it's not a bad thing to experience and feel the right things in the house of God, but there must also be understanding, something that is discerned, the communication of truth. Now, Asaph, when he went to the sanctuary of God, it only did him good because he felt he was connected with eternity, something that made him understand the end of the wicked. Friends, I understand 
The, the word of God needs to be applied to daily life. I believe in what an older generation would call, and even if you're a younger generation, you're going to understand what I'm saying, what they would talk about is being shoe-level, shoe-leather Christianity, street-level Christianity. Man, it's practical. It deals with the things of the day. Yes, we want that. But at the same time, we don't come to church to just hear about the news of the day or the same kind of talk that we would hear in the marketplace or the business office. There has to be something in the house of God that speaks of ultimate relevance. The relevance of eternity. Now, as we're climbing our way up this rope or being lifted up, let's say that, we're holding on and the Spirit of God is lifting us up. Let's look at some of the heights we reach here. Verses 18, 19, and 20. He says, Surely you have set them in slippery places. You, you make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Lord, now I see it from being in the house of God. I can see it differently. That the ease and the security that the wicked seem to have, it's an illusion. Actually, really, they are set in slippery places, ready to fall at any time. Look, one of the blessings about living in California is we don't have to deal with cold weather very much. But if you've ever visited or lived in an area of cold weather, isn't it terrifying to try to walk on ice? Oh, man, it's so stressful. I mean, you walk like Frankenstein, just sure that you're going to slip at any moment. This is that you are trying to walk in a slippery place. And that's how Asaph saw the wicked. A minute before, they were strutting about because, no, they're in slippery places. I see that now. And they can be, verse 19, destroyed in a moment. I see that now with an eternal perspective. You see, earlier in the psalm, we kind of had the feeling that Asaph would gladly trade places with the wicked. Didn't you have that feeling earlier in the psalm? Not anymore. Not with the perspective that he gained at the house of God. No, their destiny is to be destroyed and, and to experience terrors. I don't want to change places with them. And with them, look at that in verse 20. It'll be like a dream when one awakes. He understood that the good life of the ungodly is as fragile as a dream. And they're going to awake to the reality of the truth. But when it's too late, being destroyed in the terrors that are their portion. And all this will happen, verse 20, when the Lord rouses himself. Asaph here is admitting that it kind of seems like God is sleeping. <laughs> Lord, rouse yourself. But, but it just seems that way because he couldn't see the active hand of God's judgment against the wicked. But, but Asaph understood that God would not always, and please understand when I say this, God would not always sleep, so to speak, in his patience toward the wicked. One day, he's going to waken and judge them, and they'll be despised as phantoms. So now he's going to get honest here more before the Lord. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, 
I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Lord, I I confess that I had a sinful lack of understanding before I went into the house of the Lord. Now I feel foolish that I had forgotten these obvious truths of eternity and your justice. I, I was like a beast. Did you see that in verse 22? I was like a beast towards you. You know, animals don't seem to have any concept of eternity. And when we live our lives just for the moment, just for the pleasures of the moment, we're living like beasts, not like men and women. Even so, and this is so beautiful in verse 23. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. I love that. He didn't say you're with me. I'm with you. It's as if Asaph is saying, Okay, Lord, sometimes I I get it wrong. Sometimes I need that perspective from the house of God. Sometimes I go off in my thinking. But you know what, Lord? You're stuck with me. I'm with you. At the end of it all, I'm just holding on to your right hand. Remember that, parents, when your kids were little? And uh, you, you could just hold out a finger, and that's what they would grab onto. I don't know why, but that image fills my mind. The, the child's hand's too, whole, too small to hold on to your hand, but they can hold on to a finger, and they just hold on. They're, they're with you. And that's what Asaph is saying. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And notice this at the end of verse 24. And afterward, receive me to glory. Lord, you're going to guide me in this life and ultimately receive me to glory. And as a godly man, Asaph understood this. I'm going to have my afterward glory. The wicked are going to have their afterward. It's going to be destruction and terror. Let's wrap up the psalm here. Verse 25. This is so beautiful. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. What a beautiful expression of a heart that longs for eternity. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's a lot in heaven. I don't doubt that there's amazing angels in heaven. There's streets of gold in heaven. There's pearly gates of some kind. There's no doubt sights and sounds and experiences that we can't even comprehend. But you know the real glory of of heaven? God himself. Whom have I in heaven? You. And therefore, verse 25 There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Lord, you're not just my heavenly hope. You're my earthly desire. You're both. 
And even though, verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. I don't know. Maybe Asaph was getting older, or he anticipated, of course, getting older. He sees what happens to older people. You know, we just age. Young people, it'll happen to you. I know you don't feel it, but it will. You'll be singing this right along with Asaph. You'll be saying, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The idea of portion there is of an inheritance. Lord, you're my inheritance forever. Those who are far from you, verse 27, shall perish, verse 28. But for me, I'm not going to be far from you. It's good to be near God. You're going to be my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Friends, isn't it amazing how much good Asaph's visit to the house of the Lord did for him? And that's why you should thank the Lord that you have a house of the Lord here to come to that's full of prayer, that's full of worship, that proclaims the word of God and exalts sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's a place where we can come and bring our questions. And God will, but both through what we learn in the word, but then also just by his presence, answer these great questions. He saw the great benefit in drawing near to God. He doubted that before, but he understood now. Friends, what do you draw near to in your crisis? Do you draw near to your distractions, to unclean things, to addictive substances? No, Asaph knew this. For me, it is good to be near God. And that gave a passion to tell of all of God's works. All right, before I close this, Let me just quickly speak of a couple of ways, glorious ways, that I think Psalm 73 points to Jesus Christ. Number one, Jesus intimately knew the sorrows of life. In verse 14, Asaph wrote this, All day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You know, in theory, only in theory, Jesus... As the incarnate son of God, God the son, in theory, he could have protected himself from all the sorrows and pains of life, but he didn't. He came as the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Jesus shared some of Asaph's suffering. Secondly, Jesus is the one whom we have in heaven. When we read in verse 25, whom have, I ha- whom have I in heaven but you? We know that it is Jesus ascended and enthroned in heaven. He's our advocate. He's our defender. He's our intercessor. He is for us. And he is for us right now, ascended in heaven. And then number three and finally, Jesus understood the end of sinners. In verse 17, Asaph relates how he went to the house of God and he says, then 
I discerned their end, the end of the wicked, the end of sinners. Can I say it to you very simply and directly? Jesus didn't have to go to the house of God to know this, to intimately understand the end of sinners and those who reject God. As being fully God and fully man, Jesus knew. Can I tell you something that that may shock some of you, but it's true. Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in the Bible. Jesus spoke more about hell than everybody else in the Bible combined. Why? Because he knew of it in a way that nobody else did. Jesus is that great sacrifice that says to you and I, your sins can be atoned for. The sinner doesn't have to remain that way. The, the, the sanctuary of God, the person work of Jesus Christ is wide open to all those who will come and repent and believe. You can come and receive that understanding and have your mind uh, pulled up out of the quicksand even as it was for Asaph. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord. Lord, we feel like there's times when we've been down in that mire right there along with Asaph. And Lord, first of all, we we thank you that you never condemned Asaph. He, He felt bad about it. But Lord, you dealt with him so tenderly, so beautifully. And so Lord, we're grateful that you speak to us the same way. Lord, I pray that you give every one of us here this evening a fresh vision of eternity. Not to make us think that this life that you've given us on earth doesn't matter. Lord, it matters everything. Because eternity matters. And the good God sets all things right in eternity. We love you. We thank you for the goodness and the beauty of your word. Help us to have the same understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.